I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. So Mark, today we'll explore why unfettered AI is a problem and how we can address it. Why is this something you're thinking about? So I follow the AI conversation closely and I hear a lot of utopian stories on the one hand and a lot of dystopian stories on the other. I'm really interested in exploring today what could go wrong with AI technologies and to begin to think through how we might put in place the guardrails to prevent that from happening. What about you, Miriam? Why is this topic interesting to you? Well, I agree. I think that there are two spectrums out there where we mostly live when we're talking about AI. We think of it as all powerful or our worst nightmare. And I think the reality is somewhere in between. And so I'm really looking forward to deepening our understanding of where AI can benefit our lives and what checks we need to put in place to make sure that it remains a benefit and not an obstacle or a problem. Well, I think that that's, that's, that's a great topic to explore today. I'm excited to dive into it. Let's jump in. Meredith Broussard is a computer scientist and a journalism professor. She studied computer science and English at Harvard undergrad and has worked in some of the most prestigious labs as a software developer, AT&T Bell Labs, MIT Media Lab. She's currently a data journalism professor at NYU. And Meredith is a builder. She builds floors. She builds AI tools to fix and identify problems such as Bailiwick to help herself and other journalists understand campaign finance trends and write stories. And among her many other uh, building AI stories, she created my husband's favorite, the app to identify how many pizzas you should order for your party. Her book, Artificial Unintelligence, how Computers Misunderstand the World is a must read. Meredith, in your book, you take us on a tremendous journey to understand the origins of AI and the development in such subtle and not subtle ways that exclude women and persons of color from its origins. You explain the mechanics of AI in such clear detail uh, that even a lawyer like me can understand what's happening and really the misnomer of artificial intelligence and how it really never can be what it aspires to be in terms of our thinking of intelligence. You even bring us on a bus hackathon with you. So, so much to dive into here. And we are so thrilled that you can join us for our podcast and particularly as we want to answer this question today. So let's jump in. Meredith, what makes unfettered AI so dangerous and how can we address it? Well, Miriam, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to, uh, to be uh, in this conversation with you. Uh, one of the things that makes AI dangerous is people's misperceptions about it. So when people think about AI, they generally think about the Hollywood visions of AI. They think about uh, autonomous cars, they think about the Terminator, they think about uh, Hal from uh, the uh, Stanley Kubrick film. And it's really important to remember that these things are totally imaginary. And what's real about AI is that AI is math. So contrary to the uh, to its title, it's not actually about intelligence. It's about 
really complex and beautiful and complicated math that is performed by machines. So we run into a lot of problems when uh, people adopt AI systems and they imagine that the systems are more capable than the systems actually are. So for example, if you use an AI system to determine who is first in line to get a COVID vaccine, if you use AI to determine uh, who is eligible for uh, public benefits, what you're actually going to do is you're going to end up reproducing the existing inequality of the real world. Because we all know that the real world has bias. It has inequality, it has problems. And with AI systems, with these mathematical systems, what we do is we train them on data from the world as it is now. And the system can't really learn and reason. It just reproduces what it sees in the data. So if you give it a set of data that says, here's who has gotten mortgages in the past, well, it's mostly wealthy people who have gotten mortgages in the past. And people who are less wealthy are not, are not represented in the data set. And so the machine is going to learn, okay, we're going to give uh, rich people mortgages and poor people are not going to get mortgages. And by doing so, you're just going to reproduce patterns of residential segregation that already exist in the United States. So the real danger of unfettered AI is what people use it for and trust it for. People trust it too much. Fantastic. Thank you, Meredith. I think there's so many different aspects of that answer that, that, that we could dive into and explore, but I want to turn it for a minute to your story, because as Miriam said at the beginning, you've had an incredible journey to the place where you are in, in, in this space, and, and you've really um, become such a crucial part of, of, of this conversation. So maybe you could just sort of zoom out one layer and just tell us about why you care about this. What got you into into this space and, and, and how did you first you know, learn about and start to, to think about and care about bias in AI yourself? Oh, Mark, thank you for that question. Uh, so I came to this, uh, this conversation, I came to the conversation about AI ethics uh, as a developer of software systems and also as a concerned person. So I started my career as a computer scientist and I quit to become a journalist. And the reason that I quit computer science is all of the reasons that you hear about for why women, especially black women like me, leave STEM fields. Uh, the harassment, the bias, uh, the fact that there was nobody above me who looked like me, who I could look to and model my career on. There was nobody who looked like me in the upper echelons of power. And people talk about uh, the uh, lack of women and people of color in the tech industry as a pipeline problem and as a culture problem. Honestly, it's both. I mean, it's everything. Uh, the tech industry has not moved the needle significantly on gender equality or on uh, diversity in my entire career, which has spanned basically the entire, uh, entire time we've had the web, right? So we, we actually learned in 
the 70s and 80s at least about how do we increase uh, gender equality in the workplace. Uh, none of those recommendations have been implemented at tech companies and tech companies seem really confused about how do we look to the past to find things that we can implement in the present, right? So we could put in place more generous family leave policies. Uh, we could do more education about uh, say gender bias and gender harassment. We could uh, you know, make sexual harassment uh, not criminalized, but we could actually punish harassers as opposed to giving them golden parachutes to leave companies. Right? So there are lots of things that we can do. There are known remedies. It's just a matter of implementing those remedies. Uh, so I, you know, I see all this. And like I said, I got pushed out of computer science. Uh, and then I came back to it. Uh, because it's something that I love and uh, it's something that is really important for the world. I care deeply about uh, making a better future and also thinking about how can we use technology to bring about that better future. Especially when it comes to AI, there are just a lot of misperceptions about AI. And so I saw the AI hype cycle repeating itself. So I don't know if you remember this, but back in the beginning of the, uh, you know, back in the days when the web was beginning, there was all of this hype. You know, we were going to live our entire lives online and everything was going to be transformed and digital technology was going to be this, this magic bullet that was going to solve all of our problems. And the problems didn't really get solved uh, and the hype kind of died down, but when, the AI hype cycle started, I recognized it. It sounded just like the hype cycle that we heard at the beginning of the first dot-com revolution. And so I started thinking, all right, how could we do it better this time? How could we cut through some of the hype and be realistic this time about what technology can and can't do? Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for uh, sharing your journey with us. So relatedly, you've introduced the term techno chauvinism. And I wonder if you could explain to us not only what you mean by that, but you've made the point that when you're talking about it, certain populations will get it. Uh, they understand it. They know who is being left out uh, in the considerations of AI development and use uh, and what other considerations need to come in to ensure that AI is as useful and innovative as we want it to be, meaning that it's also inclusive and not discriminatory. So when you're talking about techno chauvinism to those who are creating the AI and senior executives, how do you explain it as something that they need to care about and address? Techno-chauvinism is a kind of bias. It says that technology is superior to other solutions. Uh, and what I would argue instead is that the computer is not right for everything. I would argue that we should ask, what is the right tool for the task? Sometimes the right tool for the task is a computer. And sometimes it's something simple like a book in the hands of a child sitting on a parent's lap. And one is not inherently better than the other. 
It's about what's right for the moment and for the context. Uh, so we can look at the uh, COVID vaccine rollout as an example of this. Uh, the vaccine appointments uh, up until this point have only been accessible uh, through signing up on the web. But people who are say over 75 uh, are having a lot of trouble uh, using the website sign up. And so the better strategy would have been uh, to have a telephone number from the beginning that if you don't wanna use the website, then you can just call the telephone number and somebody will sign you up. So early techno chauvinists uh, said that, all right, everything is gonna be online and online is better. And it's simply not true. Uh, online is not best for every single circumstance. Uh, we need to be deliberate about when and how we use technology so that we're not edging people out who actually need access to these services. That's fantastic. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a sort of antidote to some of the, the, the discourses and conversations that um, uh, they really do center technology in, in just about everything. And, and so thank you for, for, for fleshing that out for us. Um, you brought us with the, the, the COVID response piece into, into the realm of current events and, and, and politics. So I wanted to um, just draw you a little bit more on that and ask you, you know, we have a new administration in place. We have an opportunity to um, rethink some of the approaches that the government has been taking towards AI technology. And I'd be curious to hear from you, you know, what recommendations and ideas you have for how the Biden administration can really lean in and ensure that there's significant progress in the coming months and years in fostering trustworthy and responsible AI? You know, I have been um, sitting here in my house waiting for the Biden administration to say, hey, Meredith, what do you think are the best things that we could do in order to, uh, you know, in order to expand explainable and trustworthy AI. So I am so glad you asked that question. Uh, I think that the first thing that the Biden administration can do is staff up. We need more people working at government agencies on regulation and enforcement. We need to train those regulators in looking at AI, understanding AI, understanding what are the pitfalls of AI, understanding that it's not magic, that it's just math, and we can look at the ways that it's biased. Uh, and at the same time, while we staff up, we need to implement the existing rules. So I think that people imagine that we need to write new rules in order to govern AI. It's not true. Uh, we could start by enforcing the existing laws that are on the books. So for example, in hiring, uh, we have the 80-20 rule. Uh, anytime that there is an algorithm that's used to sort through candidates or sort through resumes, there's probably some AI somewhere in the background. And so one thing that regulators can do is audit these algorithms to find out if they are actually uh, holding people back from different opportunities. 
So for example, there is a company called HireVue that does uh, automated analysis of people's facial expressions in video interviews. And this is pseudoscience. It's not legitimate. Uh, it's one step away from phrenology. And if you are uh, somebody who has, say, a facial tic, uh, or if you have uh, some kind of injury, or if you're blind, then you're going to be uh, automatically kicked out of the pool of applicants by uh, the algorithm, by the AI, because you're not looking at the camera if you're blind, for example. And looking at the camera, maintaining eye contact with the camera is one of the uh, you know, one of the things that is used to measure whether somebody is uh, a good candidate according to this computer system. It's not good science. Uh, there's a lot of AI that is based on not particularly good science. There's a lot of bogus race science embedded in AI, especially in medical systems. Uh, and so we need to say when we notice that things like this are happening, we need to say, no, we should not use this system because it violates uh, civil rights, because it discriminates against people who are differently abled. We need the ability to say no to using AI or using computer systems in certain contexts. So you raised so many interesting points there. Um, how the government may be using AI itself in hiring and how it should be uh, looking at others, regulating others who are using hiring AI programs. You also in your book go into detail about the uh, painful problems that exist in one school system in Pennsylvania based on their relationship with, with uh, data collection and reliance on AI systems in ways that are really problematic for a variety of reasons. So given what you've said about hiring AI systems and uh, the public school system challenges that you wrote about, do you think that AI can be used in government? I think there are definitely ways that AI can be used in government. Uh, I would like us to invest a lot more in uh, maintaining and upgrading uh, government software. Uh, one of the problems that we have is that software development has gotten uh, completely out of control salary-wise. So the salary that you can get as a government worker doing software is 10 times less than what you can get as a software developer for one of the big tech firms. So there's this enormous problem of brain drain. And we actually have the same problem in media because we have these incredibly talented people who uh, are great writers and thinkers, come in as journalists, pick up a bunch of tech skills, learn data journalism, and then they look at the salary differential and they say, oh, I could be making a lot more money and working half as hard working for a tech firm. And so then they go to a tech firm and then you know, we're, we have a brain drain problem. Uh, the government has a really similar problem. Uh, you could just make so much more money in the private sector. Uh, so there are lots of ways that we can solve this problem. 
Uh, most of them have to do with additional training and additional funding and uh, just really carefully going in and engaging with and reforming bureaucratic processes. And nobody wants to hear that, right? Like when you say, oh yes, we need to reform the bureaucracy, people just cringe. And they think, oh yeah, I don't really wanna do that paperwork. I don't really wanna have that fight. Uh, but so much of computation is actually about bureaucracy. So when you understand the bureaucratic processes, you can think about, okay, how are these being implemented inside the computational system? Or how are these not being implemented in, inside the computational system? What are the safeguards that exist in the real world? And how are these safeguards not being implemented inside the software system? And that's a good way of figuring out what could possibly go wrong inside a computer system. Fantastic. That's. Uh both incredibly helpful and, and also a, a kind of throwing down of the gauntlet. It's a, it's a huge challenge, I think, to, to get there, but, but obviously an important one. Um, I'd like to, to, to ask one more question uh, before we kind of wrap up, just because it's, it's so fantastic to have um, your perspective uh, on, uh, on this podcast. Um, you've done such important work cutting through the hype and, and, and trying to, 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 to differentiate between, you know, what is just the kind of PR and the marketing narratives and, and what is real. And um, I think you mentioned earlier, you know, how important it is to figure out, you know, what, what shouldn't we be doing with computers? You know, where is another tool, the right tool for the job? Uh, what I'd like to hear from you is within that subset of things that AI actually can be useful for, you know, where do you think we should be allocating our effort in terms of AI development and use? You know, what are the areas where it actually could be really helpful and where it can avoid some of these problematic outcomes that you've written and talked about? You know, if we're gonna prioritize certain, you know, directions for this technology, what should they be? Whether in terms of investment or research funding or government support? Ooh, so this is like a blue sky question. Uh, like if I were, if I were the, uh, the king of the world, what would I do? I guess so. Or, you know, what, 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 I guess the, you know, really the question is, um, what should we be doing with AI? What should we be doing with AI? Uh, not as much as we think <laughs> the, uh, is the appropriate answer. Uh, we should be, uh, educating people about what AI is and isn't. We should make sure that AI is compliant with the law, and we can do that by auditing algorithms. Uh, we need better visibility. Uh, anytime there's an algorithm used, uh, we need to be able to see, okay, is this AI discriminating against women? Is it discriminating against men? Is it discriminating against non-binary or trans folk? Uh, we need to see how it performs on uh, different racial or ethnic groups. We need to see how it performs on people of different abilities. This is absolutely possible. Uh, it is something that needs to be implemented in the software testing process inside companies. Uh, people often don't want to do that because QA and software testing is, is not 
the super sexy part of uh, technology development. It's really essential though. Talk to some software testers. They are the ones that are, uh, that are keeping you from certain disaster. Uh, and the move fast and break things ethos simply does not work anymore. Move fast and break things is actually a really good example of techno chauvinism. Uh, you don't actually want somebody coming into your house and moving it fast and breaking things because you've spent a lot of time laying the floor in your house and setting it up and you don't want a bull charging through a china shop, right? That's not good for society. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that I try and do in the book is I try and give people examples of what it looks like to actually make technology. What does it look like to uh, build a machine learning algorithm that uh, decides who lives and who dies in the Titanic disaster is one example in there. Uh, and Marianne, you mentioned the, uh, the Pizzafy, uh, the pizza calculating app that I built. That was one of my favorite projects. Uh, what I did was I went on a, uh, on a hackathon that was pretty absurd. Uh, people imagine that hackathons are these kind of uh, places where all of this rapid innovation happens. And really, they're just weekend long parties where you stay up late and eat a lot of pizza and drink a lot of Red Bull and you code and it's really fun. But what the actual value is, is it's practice coding for the people who go there. And it's also about networking. Uh, so my team developed a, uh, a pizza calculating app that will tell you how much pizza you need to order and what kinds of toppings you need for a pizza party. Uh, I was throwing a lot of pizza parties uh, in my friend group at the time. And so we would always do pizza math and it was always unnecessarily complicated. And I thought, why don't we make an app to do that? And it was awesome. Uh, and we won the hackathon, I should say, which was also a lot of fun. Uh, so we got bragging rights. But building, uh, building this technology uh, was far more mundane than most people think. So I think it's important to understand uh, the warts and all aspects of building technology so that you can demystify it when you're thinking about what are the consequences of this technology in the world. And so you can feel empowered to say, this is when I think we should use technology and this is when I think we should not use this particular kind of technology. And we should just keep looking for a solution that meets all of our needs. Thank you for that answer. And one thing we like to talk about on the, this podcast is what we're excited about, what we're fearful about. It's something that you and I talk about, I think in each of our discussions, Meredith, of, of some of the nightmare scenarios that could play out um, and, and some of the things we're excited about in the space of AI and AI ethics. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, what is your rose, your thorn and your bud in AI? What are you excited about, fearful of and looking forward to in this space? I would say that I am really excited about uh, Alondra Nelson's leadership in the Biden administration. Uh, I think that she is going to bring uh, some amazing innovation and scholarship to the Biden administration's uh, policies around science and technology. What I'm really scared of 
is I'm scared of techno chauvinism uh, run rampant. Uh, I'm scared of people taking digital utopian visions too seriously uh, and imagining that it is possible to, for example, write algorithms that are going to uh, govern speech online, uh, which is something that Facebook is trying to do and is failing miserably at, as we can see from the misinformation uh, pandemic that we are, uh, that we're having online. Uh, and the way that uh, the misinformation epidemic led to the capital insurrection is unforgivable. Uh, and the third thing was what I'm looking forward to, right? The thing I'm looking forward to with AI is less hype. Uh, there are lots of things that I would really like for machines to do in my life. Uh, if I never had to do laundry again, if there were like a robot that would, uh, you know, put all the laundry into the washer and fold everything, I would be really happy. Uh, if there were a robot that would, uh, you know, shovel the sidewalk when it snows, I would be really happy about that. But these are things that are surprisingly difficult for robots to do. Uh, so I am looking forward to a world where uh, techno-chauvinism does not reign, uh, where people are kind of reasonable and measured about what technology can and can't do, uh, where a world where we stop imagining that uh, self-driving cars are going to be our salvation. And we look at things like having a robot pool cleaner and say, okay, that's a really good use of automation, uh, you know, of uh, unmanned autonomous vehicle technology. And that's enough. We're just going to stop with having pool cleaning robots. That is a very helpful framing. So we need to think more about how to infuse the Jetsons lifestyle into our daily life and forget about the uh, robot takeover um, that will uh, be our both fear and, and uh, the thought of many science fiction movies. Yeah, the thing about the robot takeover is in order to deactivate a robot, you just unplug them. That's it, then they're deactivated. Well, you've given us so much to digest and think about. I, I love in your book how you make us realize that we think of data as an immutable truth. Today, you gave us the starting question we should ask with AI, what could go wrong? Uh, and, and you've made us think about this misinformation pandemic, uh, as well as the many ways that the administration and government uh, can do good and can avoid harms in this space. Thank you, Meredith, for the education and for all you do to make sure that AI is adding and not harming our lives. Well, Miriam, Mark, this was such a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. So Mark, uh, I don't know about you, uh, as much as I've read and thought about AI, I just learned even more hearing from Meredith. I, I couldn't agree more. It was tremendous. We covered so much ground from the legal and the policy dimensions to the discourse and the and the hype cycle and the popular imaginations around AI. Um, Meredith is really a tour de force, and, and I, I certainly learned a lot. 
I'm curious what what jumped out to you in terms of um, uh, you know key nuggets of insight that, that you're going to take away from this conversation that are going to you know change the way that you think about AI in the future. I really like how she framed the introduction to working with AI as what could possibly go wrong. Instead of, I think we often bring in optimism, uh, which is well-founded and helpful to motivate us to work with AI and to build and create. But I think there's a really healthy dose of skepticism that we can bring in and, and understand where are its limits? Where could we be hurting someone down the line? Uh, what could possibly go wrong? What a great first step to integrate into our imaginations as we explore all the good that we can also be doing with AI. How about for you, Mark? What, what did you take home from that chock full of great insights? Yeah, a couple of things. I, I agree with what you said. And, and I think there's another question that Meredith posed to us, which uh, I will definitely be taking away, which is, is AI the best tool for the job? And there are many cases where AI can be helpful. It can, um, you know, improve our efficiency. It can uh, help us get better outcomes in any number of different domains. Uh, but that's not the case in every area. And it really bears asking before we go headlong, fueled by hype, into trying to use AI to solve every problem that we have. To just step back from that and ask ourselves, is this the right tool? You know, are there risks that we need to be thinking about when we use this tool? And are there other tools that could do as good of a job or better at solving whatever problem it is we're trying to solve? And I just thought that was hugely helpful because as Meredith highlighted, there is a lot of hype around this technology. And I think it will benefit the whole sector to just cut through that hype a little bit and to differentiate where does AI actually add value and where does it either not add enough value or create so much risk that it's just not worth going down that road. Mm -hmm. I'm also really appreciative of her context for how AI impacts women and people of color and of the fundamental challenges we have in ensuring that people of different race, ethnicity, color are brought into the process of the AI creation. Uh, she, you know, when you asked her about pinpointing the problem, you know, she really showed us that it, it is an ongoing problem throughout the AI creation and marketing cycle. And we cannot just look at it as one area we need to target and fix. We need to make sure that throughout the AI development product life cycle, uh, that people of color, that women, that people with different backgrounds and expectations are bought into the process, not only to make sure that it doesn't harm them, um, but also to make sure that they can be part of the benefits as well. Absolutely. I think that was a, a really key takeaway for me too. It's not just a question of underrepresentation, uh, which is, is, is very important. And we see that, you know, in terms of the statistics on the numbers of women and people of color working inside of tech companies, uh, studying AI, uh, there's a huge underrepresentation problem. Uh, but there's also a question of, you know, who are these technologies serving? Uh, whose interests are they serving? 
Um, and those two things are related. And I think um, Meredith really brought those together really well, you know, sort of showing us and, and, and demonstrating, and she does this in the book too, that uh, unless you have those voices at the table and being really active in the development process of these technologies, it's gonna be very hard for these technologies to actually um, be uh, of service and to, to really help and to uplift um, populations that have traditionally been underserved by technology. Um, so I thought that was, that was really interesting. I'll add one more thing that I, I thought was great, and I'd be curious for your perspective on this too, as a former uh, Department of Justice uh, official, um, I thought it was really interesting, Meredith's emphasis on not just creating new regulations, but on enforcing existing laws and regulations that may not have been written with AI in mind, but which have a bearing on AI. And I thought that was really interesting because in my uh, professional experience, I work a lot with governments who are all thinking about, you know, how do we develop better policies for AI? And the focus is almost entirely on new policies, new regulations, and new laws. And I just thought it was very interesting that she uh, kind of broadened that, that focus to include uh, enforcement and, and really, I think, um, gave me some food for thought about, gosh, what laws are out there that, that actually, if they were enforced, would really help a lot in terms of um, creating a, a more positive and inclusive future for AI. And you know, how can we think about that in addition to starting from scratch and trying to make more AI-specific um, laws and regulations? You're so right, Mark. I was really struck by that point and I was glad she made it because there's no question that we need additional regulations to clarify the guardrails, to clarify what is and is not acceptable in building and using AI. But she's 100% right that there are so many laws on the books that have only been marginally applied uh, or, or not at all. And they are on the books to create uh, protections from the type of harms that we're looking to prevent with AI as well as with humans. And so I think she's right that lawyers need to jump in and understand where there are harms that their clients are uh, potentially causing by not thinking about how AI is regulated and impacted by laws on the books. Are they being accessible in an ADA compliant way? She brought up the example of the AI used in hiring and if somebody is blind, that that could be a strike against them in the overall evaluation. So I think it becomes exponentially harder in this space because you won't know necessarily which factors were part of someone's final assessment or the recommendation whether or not to hire them or not. Um, but equally, if not more important, because of that basic fact. Yeah, it's really a terrific um, area to explore. And I hope that this is something that, that that we'll be able to talk about more with, with other guests on the podcast, because I think, uh, as you say, there's just, there's so much on the books already. And I think that the um, task of figuring out how best to apply that to these emerging areas of, of, of risk and harm in AI, it's a huge task, but a really important one. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback, and if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. 
And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to Alex Pena and the NP Agency for their great work and their generous production of this podcast.